Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Early on in his 20-year career as a U.S. Navy SEAL team commander, Rich Devinney was repeatedly surprised when highly talented candidates washed out of the program when less talented people excelled. Inevitably, he came to realize that the people who consistently rose to the top of one of the world's toughest military roles had something beyond great skills in common. They had the right attributes. Top-performing SEALs shared an almost identical list of hidden drivers of success. They were courageous and adaptable, resilient, conscientious, and persevering. And what Davini ultimately discovered in the selection of Navy SEAL candidates proves to be just as valuable insight for leaders in traditional workplaces. That is, true optimal performance goes well beyond just skill. It's really all about a person's dyed-in-the-wool attributes. Rich Devinney is my guest today, and we're about to do a deep dive into his new book called The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. I'm intentionally keeping my introduction of Rich short, noting the conversation you're about to hear ran a little long. Rich's fascinating insights about leadership of Navy SEALs proves to be invaluable for all of us, and I don't want you to miss any of it. With that, I welcome to the podcast, Rich Devinney. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a joy to have you. And to start things off, I would like for you to tell us about what is the job of a U.S. Navy SEAL. I mean, obviously, we've all been familiar with it, and we know some of your former colleagues were part of the raid on Osama bin Laden. But describe the kinds of assignments that you regularly took on in your career and and even describe, you know, the characteristics and mentality of the people typically chosen for that role. Kind of immerse us in that before we get going. Yeah, I'd love to. Special operations holistically was designed along the ideas that the units would frustrate and agitate enemy positions and such. And so they were they were designed with this idea that they needed groups that could go into areas, environments, or missions that had never really been done before. And so this idea of uncertainty unknown and kind of navigating that is really at the foundational level of any special operations unit. So when we talk about the jobs and roles that I took, I would say that they were always diverse and different. And the mentality of the people, we say chosen, but really the people who are able to make it through a selection process like that requires this ability to navigate uncertainty and unknown. And I call, I kind of nickname SEALs or Spec Ops guys or Spec Ops people, because it's not just guys, as masters of uncertainty. And what that means is that we have and hyper-develop this ability to get dropped into environments that are unknown and that we have to kind of immediately figure out and then perform. And that takes a level of innate qualities that you bring to the table. It takes a level of training that you kind of do and develop over time, and certainly a level of comfort, so it becomes kind of automatic. So I think that's, if I were to pick a predominant mentality, it would be that, is the ability to drop into an environment or get thrown into a a situation of discomfort, uncertainty, challenge, stress, and immediately begin to navigate it. So when you're describing the jobs that you did without breaching any confidentiality, can you give us a little more granularity on the kinds of excursions? Like you said, you're dropped in. I mean, I imagine sometimes you literally are, like with a parachute. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're always that way. So give us a sense of what the work actually looks like. Well, yes, the work is certainly militaristic and missions would involve, certainly during the war, would involve capturing or finding bad guys would usually bring us intelligence on finding the bigger bad guy. 
So what that requires is an ability to, A, work with all of your team, you know, the, the operators, i.e. the SEALs or the special forces folks, are just a small part of the equation that makes up the special operations machines. I mean, we were supported by phenomenal logistics people, the phenomenal intelligence people, phenomenal administrative people who all were crucial to us getting out and doing the job. And so it first requires working as a team, as a unit, to find the targets kind of during wartime, to find the targets and then go out and prosecute those targets in a way that allows you to go in and find the person you're looking for and bring them back and gather intelligence. And so what I mean about uncertainty is that no plan, no mission, I would imagine no, whether you're doing a presentation or whatever, anything in life, it very rarely goes as planned. It very rarely goes perfectly, if ever. So the saying in the military is no plan ever survives first contact with the enemy. But I'll go a little bit further and say, just environmentally, things happen, things change. So it requires an adaptability. And so when I say dropped in, I kind of, it's a figurative way of saying uncertainty and the unknown always shows up. And so you have to have the ability to, and the confidence to be able to deal with that when it does, even on the best planned and rehearsed missions. Just take the Bin Laden raid as a great example. I mean, those guys trained for several months and they knew pretty much every facet of that mission. And they certainly trained for contingencies, but, you know, things happen and things happened on that raid and they immediately adjusted and persevered. And I think that's what I mean when I say the ability to do that and it's kind of the work itself. That's wonderful. So thank you. That's a great way to set this up. And then in your book, you describe the what I'll just call beyond rigorous SEAL team training process. Mm-hmm. And and most of these guys end up quitting. Yeah. And you make them ring the bell, which is like a rather painful exercise. <laughs> it's, it's not like I could just quit and give up. It's like I have to ring the bell and acknowledge to everyone that I'm quitting. So I actually think that's a really brilliant way of preventing a lot of people from quitting. But nevertheless, most of the people, the way you describe this, end up quitting because... I would imagine, and maybe you can describe this, the physical and psychological challenges. And I'm wondering about the survivors, the people who end up becoming SEALs. Are they all alpha male machismo types? You know, are they like the chest beaters kind of a thing? I know that sounds ridiculous, and I'm hoping that you're going to say absolutely not, and this is what we're all about, but I don't really know. And that leads me to wondering, what kinds of behaviors, and you use the word attributes, characterize the most effective SEAL team leaders? So I gave you a lot to think about here. Yeah, and it's a great question. I will answer with your preferred answer, absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, okay. But I'll, I'll expound. Uh, you know, so machismo, what is that? I mean, that's defined as stronger, aggressive, masculine pride, right? So certainly someone who makes it through that training has a bit of that. You know, the alpha male type person, again, the dominant male in a particular group. It's a very kind of animalistic type behavior. But I think both descriptions are limiting because they imply a single-mindedness that really is not only ineffective, but toxic when it comes to being a part of the team. The guys who make it through certainly have a predominance of a lot of the attributes we'll probably just talk about in this podcast. But it's really also this ability to very effectively work as a team and as a group. These selection processes are certainly singular in the sense that you have to push yourself beyond great physical discomfort and great mental discomfort. But ultimately, you're also going through as a team, as a group. And so a lot of the success for folks who make it through, like myself, like the brothers alongside me who did, comes from the fact that you're doing it alongside other people. And so you generate this bond and this ability to really lean on each other 
And what that manifests as in the actual job is actually a real humble way of showing vulnerability. I need to understand the guy next to me. I need to understand his strengths and his weaknesses. And he needs to understand my strengths and my weaknesses. And we both need to be transparent with both of those because I know what I can't do and I know what he can do. So he needs to know that so he can lean on me and I can lean on him. And so I think certainly there's a machismo element, there's an alpha element, but I kind of talk about this concept in leadership that I nicknamed dynamic subordination. Dynamic subordination is this concept where a team, a high-performing team, understands that challenge, stress, discomfort, and problems can come from any angle at any moment when you're in a dynamic environment, right? And so in that moment, where is the leader? Well, a lot of people think, well, the leader is the officer in charge or whatever. No, the leader is wherever the leader needs to be. The leader is the person who steps up who is closest to the problem. So in that environment, when a challenge or problem comes, the person who is the closest to that problem and the most competent immediately steps up and leads and everybody follows, right? So there's a dynamic swap between leader and follower relationships. It's happening constantly. It's almost alpha swapping. You know, the alpha position is swapping wherever it needs to be. And the people, the team are immediately stepping up or deferring based on the situation. I think So I think that the folks who make it through learn that in training and then just hyper-develop that. And it comes with trust, it comes with confidence, it comes with all these things that you do together as a unit that allows that dynamic subordination. But it's really that idea that you are transparent and vulnerable enough to say, hey, here's what I'm awesome at and here's what I'm not so awesome at. And you show that to your team and the team shows it to you. So I think that's probably the most effective quality that you'd find in folks in this profession. That's a great description. I'm wondering, how did the SEALs actually come to identify or learn the strengths and limitations of their peers? So are there exercises that people are self-disclosing? Is it a function of pay attention to everyone because you're going to be working with them over the next several months that you acquire it that way? How do you actually teach them to you know really intimately understand the people that they're working with? Yeah, I would credit Draper Kaufman, who put together the very first Hell Week in 1943, when he was tasked to design some units that would swim into enemy shorelines and find obstacles and blow them up and clear a path for the, for the amphibious invasion. And what he did, and kind of what I've nicknamed an act of unconscious genius, is he said, I don't have time to figure out if these candidates have what it takes. So I don't have months and months to do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to design the very first week in the most heinous way possible. And I'm going to design a week of training that's nonstop. And it's nonstop physical, not, you know, problem solving, things like that. The guys only got two or three hours of sleep for the whole week and the entire of the week. And that was the very first week. And it was later nicknamed Hell Week. And Hell Week still exists in SEAL training. It's kind of the crucible or the coup de grace of, of, of Bud's training. And it's a week where you start on Sunday afternoon and you don't finish till Friday afternoon and you only sleep for two or three hours. And the environment teases those things out. The environment is what allows us to learn those things. The environment immediately makes you vulnerable. And therefore, you understand your vulnerabilities. You understand how to get through and walk through those. And you understand that your teammates are able to do that, too. So I think that's the first step is you develop this bond of challenge, of moving through challenge and strife together. And then as you go to a team and go on to a platoon, you start training, then you start learning some skills that may identify you as an expert in certain fields. The guy who's really good at explosives maybe becomes the lead explosives guy. The guy who's really good at diving becomes the lead diver or in charge of the dive gear. And so you begin to develop these competencies in terms of skills while you're in the platoon. But those elemental factors, those attributes are all teased out during training. And I think that's really what the beauty is of the training process. Very pure, 
And that's probably what I, people ask what I like the most about SEAL training. And it's easy for someone to say, well, nothing, because it really sucked, right? But it, that's not true. The thing I liked about most was the purity of the system. I mean, it didn't matter where you were from, didn't matter what grades you got, didn't matter if you were the top athlete in your college or high school, didn't matter if you were from a rich town in California or farmland in Oklahoma, the program took everybody down to zero and then said, okay, where can you go from there? And so there's purity in that system that is very difficult to find anywhere else. And that's one of the things I love the most. And that's what helps define, you know, whether guys can do it both in training, but certainly in the real job. What percentage of these guys actually make it through? Yeah, you know, so I'd say on average, it's about 15% make it through. That floats a little bit. I remember my class, and this was back 20 years ago, although these numbers are fairly are still fairly accurate. My class started with something like 165, and we ended up graduating 38. Do you tell them in advance, here's what you should be expecting, or is it up to them to kind of find somebody who's already a SEAL and say, tell me what it's about? In other words, do you set them up to succeed, even though you know many of them won't just because of the challenge? Or is it completely in the dark to them what they're going to experience? Well, that's a really interesting question because it's it's a little bit of both. Uh, everybody understands and goes in because you've kind of read the books, you've talked to people, what you're going to have to do. You know you're going to have to carry boats in your head. You know you're going to have to stay up for five days during Hell Week. You know you have to freeze in the surf zone for who knows how long and do sit-ups with telephone poles. But what you don't know is what that actually entails, <laughs> right? So, mm -hmm. so, you, so the knowledge is there, but the experience is not. And so this is why... You can have so many guys showing up with just complete confidence. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. I got this, right? I'm going to make it. Because no one shows up there thinking they're going to quit. And everybody shows up there with some sort of knowledge as to what they are going to be required to do. But it's really when you get in there and you do it. I mean, I can't describe to you effectively what it feels like to be sitting in the surf zone for hours or staying up for five days or carrying a boat on your head for that long. You can only get that through experience. So I think that's where the real test comes as a community, the community has done a phenomenal job and gotten better and better over the years at setting guys up for success physically. While it's very difficult to set a guy up for success mentally in terms of not quitting, what they have been able to do is decrease the number of guys who didn't make it because of injury. Hmm. And usually those injuries occurred because there wasn't enough proper physical prep. So they've done a great job at prepping guys physically beforehand in much better ways. So the number of injuries have decreased and the number of dropouts due to injury have decreased. And I think that's the most responsible way to effectively help stem attrition because you don't want to change the process and you don't want to make it any easier. You want to, the process is the process and there's a beauty and a purity to the process that everybody recognizes needs to stay the way it is. But the questions will always come, well, how can we get more guys through? And so the responsible thing that the community has done is say, well, let's physically prepare them so at least we can mitigate the injury. And so there's a lot of effort that has gone on and still goes on to that end. I think that's really smart. So one more thing here before we get into the attributes is this question of, you described something that is a little bit unfamiliar to me in the sense that all the SEALs are expected to be leaders given any situation that they're in, right? Somebody has to step up and it could be any of them. Right. So describe the leader of the SEALs. So you're a commander of this group, but in respect to maybe how you manage them or really I think probably a better way to set this up would be to say, describe the people who become the leader of SEALs. 
the team leaders or yeah. even further up the chain? Yeah. Like, what are their qualities and characteristics and attributes? Yeah, it's a very deep question. So there's a difference between a leader and the person who's in charge, because the person in charge can be self-designated and someone can be given a rank or a position. So that's in charge. So the first thing we have to recognize is in the military, you will always have people in charge and you have positions that designate people in charge. And that is everything from the officer in charge to the troop chief, to the lead breacher, to the lead sniper. Um, Those are positionally assigned as the people in charge. You know, you can't designate yourself a leader. In other words, I can't tell you that I'm funny or that I'm handsome. It's not up to me. It's up to other people. And so so whether or not you're a leader is actually up to other people who decide that this person is a leader or that you are a leader. And they do that based on behavior. And so the community and the SEAL teams has people in charge. You know, they have the officer in charge and the troop chief. The leaders are often those very people because they've been able to step into and promote to those ranks because of their performance and because people see them as leaders. But the leadership aspect is because people look to them as people who lead and they look to them as people they can turn to, they can lean on. So the best leaders in the SEAL teams are the leaders because they understand the team and its skills, capabilities and attributes to a degree such that they can empower each member to step up when they need to step up because it's really all about how to operate, how to get this group of people who operate effectively and seamlessly in environments that you can't necessarily predict. And so to do that, the leaders have to make sure that every member is prepared and confident and understands their role, their competencies, their skills, their attributes, and their weaknesses, and then are empowered to step up when it's time to step up. So that's really the best leaders in the spec ops community are those. It has less to do with what skills they've collected along the way or how good of a shot they are or how good of a skydiver they are and more to do with their ability to do that. Because again, you're talking about a group of guys who are hyper-intelligent, hyper-motivated and hyper kind of willing to be in there, step in the ring and kind of and step up when they're asked to step up or when they need to step up. So you actually really have to empower that. And so really it's less about having to push people forward and more about having to, in some cases, rein in <laughs> when you... You know, yeah, when you, yeah, when you right. have a, a, a bunch of guys who are just ready to go and that reining in, oftentimes it's not really, I'm ordering you to stand down or anything. It's more like, hey, let's just recognize that even though you're ready to go and you want to, this person here is the better person to step up right now. So let that person go. It's kind of that give and take and that fluidity in the experience, if that makes sense. Is this a brotherhood? It is a brotherhood, yes, but it's an interesting one, and it's a deep one. There's a brotherhood for everybody who wears that seal pin, that trident pin. If I met a SEAL on the street today that I've never met before, there's certain things about that person that I would know I could count on immediately because of that common bond. But then there's also the brotherhood that happens inside your teams, inside your platoons, inside your troops as you move through your career. So it's a larger brotherhood, but then there are a series of kind of smaller pockets of brotherhoods that occur as well. So, But ultimately, I always felt like it was a really cool brotherhood and kind of fraternity to be a part of with such purpose. Well, this is a naive question, but are there women SEALs? There are not yet. They had, as I understand this, right? So I'm a retired SEAL. So it's funny when you when you leave the community, your situational awareness on what's going on in the community drastically decreases. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say, I think it was a few years ago, they authorized the special operations community at large to allow women to take part in the selection process. So I think a couple women have tried. I don't know how far they've gotten, and they have not yet succeeded, but there are openings for women. They're not excluded anymore, as far as I understand it. 
That's great. I'm glad I asked the question. And then one last, there's a randomness to this just based on what you're saying and how I'm thinking about it. But one question I have in terms of the people who either are in charge or the people who become leaders, let's just stay with the people who are in charge. Mm -hmm. Do they have a caring element to their teams, to their people? Do they look out for their people or is, is there any of that orientation? Some of those people in charge do and some of those people in charge don't. And I would say that those people who are in charge that do are the ones more likely to be labeled as leaders. The ones who are in charge that don't, that's just the guy who happens to be in charge at the time. And I've experienced both. I've experienced leaders who I know they really cared about me. They cared about the people under their span of care. And it was real. It wasn't fake. There was real care there. And I've had leaders that you could tell didn't care at all. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a job. And, and I'll be honest, with you, I'm not judging either because sometimes the military has to be, I say you do. And sometimes because of the job, there has to be some level of empathy and caring that is not so much cast aside, but certainly compartmentalized because you're asking guys to go into situations that might get them killed, that they might not come back from. So there's a level in the military leadership of having to be able to do that effectively. The best leaders are able to care and show they care and also make those tough decisions and put aside maybe some of that softness uh, to say, hey, this is the way it does. And the best leaders also develop a relationship with their people that they, when they're told, hey, this is the way it is, just march forward and do it. They're like, okay, I got it. Because there's already trust there, yep. right? So caring is always a good way to, to go. Perfect. So this is great. Really wonderful way to set the rest of this conversation up. Let's talk about your book and this idea of attributes. You argue that how we all perform during the most challenging and stressful moments in our lives boils down to what attributes we bring to the situations and not necessarily our talents. And you spend a lot of time in the book distinguishing between talents and attributes. And so I want you to tell us what's the difference then specifically. Why do pressure cooker moments reveal our attributes? Yeah, it's a great one. And so I'm very into semantics. So I'll get into some right now. And I'll just say, um, I think talents are a dynamic interplay between skills and attributes. And what I do in the book is I actually separate skills and attributes because both skills and attributes combined make talents. And talent, I think, seeks to a more holistic ability to kind of perform in any environment. But when it comes to skills versus attributes, what I realized and recognized while I was running a specific, it was kind of a training, it was a selection and assessment process that was for one of our specialized commands. So it was separate from our basic training. And we were taking guys who had been successful Navy SEALs for quite some time, usually five or 10 years, and they were applying for our program. And we were putting them through this process. And it was about a nine-month process. And only about 50% of them were making it through. And we found ourselves unable to effectively and productively articulate why certain guys weren't making it through. Because again, these were really great SEALs. It wasn't like a basic training course where you're getting trainees from everywhere and they're new to the Navy. These were experienced great SEALs. So we, we found ourselves unable to, to effectively articulate that. And this is when I began to kind of think about, okay, what's the difference? What are we actually looking for here? Because telling a guy who's been a Navy SEAL for five, 10 years that, hey, I'm sorry, you couldn't cut it because you couldn't shoot well enough. It doesn't fly. And it's confusing both to that person and to us. And so what we really kind of recognized was that we weren't necessarily looking for whether or not guys could shoot well or scuba dive well or skydive well. We were looking for how guys operated inside the environments we were putting them into. 
So just to kind of level the bubble here, there's a difference between attributes and skills. Skills are not inherent to our nature. They are learned. We're not born with the ability to throw a ball, ride a bike, or shoot a gun. We learn those. We can be taught them. We can sit down and have a class on them, right? So direct our behavior in known situations, right? Here's how to throw a ball. Here's how to ride a bike. Here's how to shoot a gun. And therefore, they're very easy to see, assess, and measure. We can see how well anybody does that. And this is exactly why most teams, when they are selecting and assessing members, they're seduced by skills first because we can see, even business teams, we can see sales numbers. We can see how how well someone sells things or does whatever skill is required for that position. So dream teams usually make the mistake of selecting the best graphics designer, the best salesperson, the best marketing person, whatever, based on skills. The problem is that it doesn't take into account how those teams, those individuals operate when things go south and the environment becomes uncertain. And that's where we're going to lean on attributes. Attributes are different. Attributes are inherent to our nature. So we are born with attributes, resilience, patience, adaptability, decisiveness, open-mindedness. We're born with these things. Now, we can see levels of these attributes in young children. So we know we are. We develop them certainly over time. They become more and more developed. We can see these things in small children. They also don't direct behavior. They inform our behavior. So my level or your levels of resilience, adaptability, and perseverance, for example, is going to inform the way you and I learned how to ride a bike when we were falling off the bike 10 times, right? And then because they're hidden, because they're in the background, they're hard to assess, measure, and test. And they're really only the most visible in times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress. When skills are hard to apply, it's very difficult to apply a skill that's directing a behavior to an unknown environment. It's the unknown environment that allows us to lean on our attributes. So the quick example that we can all relate to is 2020 <laughs> and, and COVID, which really taught us a lot about the attributes that we bring to the table. Most of us were overnight thrown into this quarantine where we couldn't leave the house, we were working from home, our kids were studying from home, we might not have enough toilet paper or food or whatever. We knew very little, if anything, about the disease. And very few of us had any skills that we could apply in those moments. What we started to do is we started to lean on our attributes. We started to lean on our our resiliency, our our adaptability, our our open-mindedness and things like that. So those things come to the fore in environments of stress, challenge, uncertainty. And this was the crucible, or I should say the laboratory inside which I could look at this because SEAL training, whether it's the basic training or the training I was in charge of, is basically all about throwing guys into stress, challenge, and uncertainty and see how they show up. So pressure cooker moments reveal our attributes because pressure cooker moments often include uncertainty and fear. And that's when skills really take a back seat because we're not sure what to apply. You've said a couple things that I really love. One is just the example of the COVID. I think, you know, what we've all really seen here is that some people have been able to not just cope, but thrive. Right. Somebody told me the other day that 2020 was the greatest year of his life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, so there's somebody who figured it out, right? And yeah. there's others yeah. that have obviously suffered or retreated, you know, overwhelmed by the ambiguity and, and the new challenges of what we were faced with. The other thing that you said, which leads me into something that I was thinking about when I was reading your book, is this language of that we are seduced by skills first. And I see managers make this mistake over and over where, you know, you hire the best salesperson and then find out that he's he or she is super unagreeable and, you know, uncooperative with others and competes within their own teams and, you know, actually undermines their effectiveness. That resonates really strongly with me, which then leads me to, well, okay, so if I'm a manager, how do I do it? How do I find somebody with great attributes and what 
came to my mind as I was reading your book was somebody that I absolutely admire as a leader for this very reason. And I'm a huge Villanova University men's basketball fan. Mm -hmm. And the coach of that team is Jay Wright. He's won two national championships, I think, in the last five or six years, which is extraordinary for a school that has, you know, less than 2,000 students. And over the years, and I've been a fan for a really long time, and I've come to realize, I think he's been there for about almost 20 years, so plenty of time to see how he recruits people. And obviously, some of these guys go on to the NBA, so they're only with the team for a couple of years before they get selected or they're coming in from a junior college, whatever. He doesn't have them any more than four years, and yet every year he's got a winning program. So I look at that and I think, that's interesting. But what's also interesting is that as a fan, I watch this team be 10, 15, 20 points down in the first half, and I'm thinking, they're never going to come back from this. And it's stressful to me to watch this team, and yet over and over, these 20-year-old players figure out a way to not get rattled, to consistently demonstrate patience and confidence and optimism and self-efficacy and courage and adaptability and perseverance. And these are all attributes, Yeah. yeah. right? So as I frame this question, I want to know your point of view on how does Jay Wright know how to repeatedly recruit players with these phenomenal attributes? And really what I'm asking is, how can our listening audience learn from you in terms of, you know, not necessarily falling prey to hiring for talent, but really truly looking for attributes and identifying what those attributes are. So it's a big setup, but I was pretty passionate about it because I want to learn from you on this. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate that. And so I'm going to start by saying if Jay is listening to this podcast, please <laughs> let, you know, I, I will say if I'm wrong about any of this, I'm going to make some assumptions. If I'm wrong about any of this, please feel free to reach out and let us know because I'm, I'm always big on the scientific method. So if I'm wrong about this, let me know I'm wrong. But here's what I would imagine he does without knowing really anything about his process is that I would imagine somewhere in his selection process first, he throws people into at least a sense of uncertainty and challenge. And he probably designs environments, either consciously or unconsciously, that test these things. So every team or organization or group of people working together needs to first understand what attributes they're looking for. And there's a difference, obviously, between attributes and skills. They need to understand what skills they're looking for and their attributes, okay? Jay is looking for certainly a set of skills that is important in any sports endeavor, really in any endeavor, but especially sports. You need the skill of being able to shoot the free throw, anything, whatever all those requisite skills are. But he probably also knows the attributes he's looking for as well. And that list of attributes is going to be different for a basketball team than it might be for a SEAL team, than it might be for a team of nurses or a team of business folks working on a project. It's going to be a little bit different because you have to look at the environment contextually, which is to say the environments inside of which you tease these things out have to be contextual to what you're looking for. For example, throwing a, a group of young basketball players into the surf zone for, you know, 30 minutes is probably not going to tell me a lot about what I need to know in terms of their ability to come back from a deficit during a game, right? They'll tell me a lot of what I need to know, whether or not a Navy SEAL can do what they need to do, but I'm not a basketball team necessarily. So, so I would imagine Jay has some environments that he's used, some techniques that he's used that tease these things out. And I would also imagine that those very techniques and environments put that candidate into some sort of uncertainty and stress. And he sees how those people respond because you can't pick someone who freaks out. And so without knowing much about the basketball environment, I'll use the business environment set. If you and I want to hire someone who gives great presentations, you know, give a great sales pitch, 
we could certainly say, okay, we're going to have this person come in and we'll have them present to us a sales pitch, right? That'll be the hiring environment criteria that we give this person rather than just an interview. The problem with that is that that person will prepare <laughs> for days and days and days so that when that person shows up for that interview and gives the presentation to you and I, it's probably going to be perfect. That didn't tell us much. All that would have told us is this person is really skilled at giving a presentation or sales pitch. What you and I would have to do if we wanted to look for attributes, would we'd have to design ways we could throw some uncertainty and stress into that environment for that person. So imagine you and I say, okay, we're going to have this person come in and give a sales pitch. And as soon as that person shows up, assumingly having prepared very well, we say, hey, we're not going to use it. Yeah, there's a last minute change. Instead of presenting on this product, we're going to have you present on this product. Or hey, the AV just went out, you won't be able to show slides, you know, something that kind of inserts some stress and uncertainty. And then we see how that person responds and handles it. That person could be like, okay, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll do it off the whiteboard. All right. Or, oh, yeah, I, I know a little bit about that. Let me just give me five minutes to kind of take a moment and, and let me reset, right? That's showing adaptability. That's showing some of these attributes that we'd be looking for versus someone's like, oh, I can't do that, or they freak out or whatever. And so I would imagine Jay's process does that in assessment selection. But the other thing that I would imagine he's done over his 20 plus year career there is that he's developed an environment where all of his staff does the same thing during practices as well. I would guess, and maybe you and I at some point go and watch this. Jay, if you're listening, we'd love an invitation. But we go watch this process during practice. I would imagine that he puts his players through drills constantly that test them in tough situations. You know, And whatever that means in basketball, I'm not sure, but puts them in those environments of uncertainty in practice so they get very used to performing when the situation is slightly unknown. So I would guess that's the way he does it. I often heard that Bill Belichick used to do this with his team. And obviously Bill Belichick, you know, New England Patriots, they're always so good at just making things happen. And I had heard that he used to run his, and probably just still does, I'm not sure, but he used to run his practices and people really didn't know what he was going to do until they showed up that day. <laughs> you know, and, and say, hey, today we're going to do this, today we're going to do that. Well, what that does, assuming it's true, is that it makes people very used to just operating on the fly. Okay, whatever happens, I'll just operate, you know, versus have it be planned and scheduled and I know exactly what's going to happen. Which never maps over to your earliest point of this conversation, right? That doesn't clear, right? Yeah. So yeah. I imagine Jay's program does that as well. They're so good at what they do. I suspect he did something else to your point a second ago that he teaches because obviously he's recruiting players. And so by the time you get them, they already have their attributes. And if the attributes aren't a match, then you've given a scholarship to somebody or brought somebody onto your team that isn't going to be a good fit. So you need to identify those in advance. And I suspect that, you know, he's got an advanced group of coaches that are going to high school games and watching these players and seeing how they respond. But you know, to pinpoint something else that you said is you got to know what your attributes you're looking for, right? Yes. So yeah. go yeah. find me people who fit this, which I think is what he does and what you did. Which maybe, which is cool. Maybe he, again, we're assuming here, but maybe he sends his scouts out or watches video of not just when these players are doing great, but also, hey, I want to see video of what this person's like when they lost or when that person screwed up. Let me see a video of that. Exactly. So he may be examining both polarities, which is why he's saying, ooh, that person, look at that person when that person just missed that critical free throw and what is he doing or what is she doing? They're really behaving in a great way. <laughs> you know, I, I like that, you know, because again, if you have the right attributes, you can actually train any skill. I certainly want to make sure people understand that. I understand, you know, being a collegiate basketball player requires a bunch of prerequisites when it comes to skills, but skills can be always trained and adapted and made better. So even if you had someone who is a little bit less on the skill side, but you had the attributes that you needed, 
you can always bring them up skill-wise. A great sports example of this is the Miracle on the Ice hockey team. What was that, 1982? But they, 1984. 1984, right. They, they made a movie about it. But this team was designed based on attributes. The coach basically said, hey, I, I need to bring together people who have all the attributes that they can work together as a team. You know, of course, there's some skill involved, but primarily it was about working together as a team so that as a team, they could come up and do what they eventually did which was to beat the Russians. So, How do you know that? So just for the audience, there was 1984, the Olympics, the Americas. America was not favored to win the gold medal. They were going up against a very strong USSR team. And there was, as you called, the miracle on ice. Yeah. But, you know, ordinarily when the Olympics, like that kind of a team gets assembled, it's usually an all-star team. Right. But how do you know that they actually, it was Herb Brooks, I think, was the coach. I may be wrong. But to the extent that whoever coached that team, you're saying that he was picking those players for their attributes so that they could work well as a team versus picking the best people from collegiate or even, I guess they were all collegiate high school hockey players. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a book about it. I didn't read the book, but I saw the movie. The movie's terrific. And just watching the movie, I said, okay, this seems to be what this guy is doing. Now, again, if I'm wrong, I'm willing to admit that. But it, it seemed to, in watching the movie and then just reading about the story, that he was looking for folks that were beyond just the best players on the ice. He was mm -hmm. looking for folks who could actually coordinate, who could actually work together. Wow. It's been a while since I've seen the movie, so I apologize if, if I'm a little bit accurate. But I think in some cases, actually rejected. Uh, some people in favor of, an, of others who he felt could work better together versus had the best skills on the field. Because we all know, I mean, you know, the jerk on the field who is awesome at everything, but kind of just through attitude and the way they show up starts to inject toxicity is eventually going to take down the whole team. So it's important to understand that. And that toxicity, that behavior comes from attributes and not skills. You know, we have to consider those innate qualities versus just the external ones. This is the exact reason why I wanted you to come on the show, Rich, because that is the point. And it matches up to my experience in my career. You could have a phenomenal team, but one person could bring the whole team down. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it happen. And so what I used to do at the end, right before I was going to make a hire, particularly at a senior level, was to bring people together from the team who were already in that role, who were already thriving and doing well and living to the values that I wanted to see. And then I would say, is this person going to fit here? Yeah. And sometimes they surprise me, like absolutely no way, no how you are not bringing this person in. And I, you know, I gave them full right to say that. So you had to honor it. Yeah. And I wasn't going to sit there and arm wrestle with them. It's like, if you didn't feel this was the person for our team, then I trust you. Yeah. And I think they saved me in many, many ways. So I think this is really important for hiring managers. I think we think we have to get all stars, you know, and I've seen managers do this over and over and particularly managers at a senior level. They think they need to have they like the top salesperson at every location and and then you bring them together and there's no collaboration. Nobody's sharing any ideas. There's there's no best practices because people are reluctant and they're sabotaging one another and it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because you did the same thing that we did when I was running the course at the SEAL command and I was the officer in charge and my cadre was all senior enlisted guys. And those guys, most of them had been SEALs longer than I had. And so they knew what they were looking for. And some of these guys had just a 
remarkably precise ability to see someone, to see a candidate and immediately recognize whether or not they had the mm-hmm. attributes. And it was always uncanny to me. And I always leaned on them heavily because we'd have an interview and I'd be like, oh my gosh, that guy seems so great. And they'd look at me like, that guy's not going to make it. Exactly. You know? And I'd be like, oh my, I had no idea, right? So this is where as leaders or as the person in charge, you have to be humble and you have to understand your competencies and where you need to lean on those people on your team. Because I leaned on them so heavily that it was critical. And I also, though, in addition to that, took accountability. So yes, at the end of the day, I was the guy making the decision. So if a candidate looked like they had everything on paper that was looked great, but my cadre is like, hey, this guy is not who we're looking for. He's not going to make it. I would say, Roger that. It wouldn't be me now saying to my CEO or, or even that candidate saying, hey, these guys don't think you're going to make it. It's like, hey, I'm making a decision and this is the decision I'm making. And we have to own that as leaders. So we have the vulnerability to both lean on our people to guide us and also the accountability to own that decision once we do. Absolutely. My strategy in that scenario was to interview and put people through the paces and then introduce them as a candidate for a binary decision that those people like you had, you know, would make for me, right? So if they said, yes, I wasn't going to go back and re-interview them, I already believed that they were good. The value of it was them saving you from making a bad decision because of their highly refined intuitions and instincts on this. So, great. So let's talk about two other leadership attributes that you talk about, courage and decisiveness. So what's your advice to managers when they find themselves in difficult or stressful situations and their teams are needing prompt decisions? I would imagine this is something you guys got really good at. Yeah, you know, decisiveness, again, one of the behaviors that imbues and embodies great leadership. And and I think, you know, in the book, when I was really kind of diving into this, which was fun for me because I dove into each attribute for the book. I really had to figure out, okay, what is the difference between decisiveness and making great decisions? And obviously, effectiveness is required with both. But really, the biggest difference is timeliness. Decisiveness involves time. And typically, time in a dynamic environment when you don't have all of the information, right? So it's easy to be decisive when you have all the info. If I'm looking at having a ham sandwich for lunch or the sushi that's been sitting on the counter for three days, I can pretty much know that the sushi that's sitting on the counter for three days is probably not the best thing to have, even though I prefer sushi than a ham sandwich. I have all the information. It's an easy to I can be decisive in having a ham sandwich. So having all the information is not the key. The key is being decisive when you don't have all the information. And so to do that takes a couple things. First, it does take courage. You know, courage, we talk about courage and decisiveness. You need courage to be decisive because when you don't have all the information, you have to make a decision to step forward and do something in the absence of everything. And this kind of, we've all heard the 80-20 rule, which is a huge kind of foundational rule for special operations is that you can have 80% of the information and you're probably not going to get better than that. You're probably never going to get better than 80% of the information you need, especially in a dynamic environment, which means you have to be comfortable going with 80. But sometimes it's not even 80, sometimes it's 50%. It's really up to the team and the person making the decision. How much information do I need to have in the moment so that I can then step forward and move and make that decision. In your world where it's literally potentially life and death, how do you get your SEALs to overcome the fear of making the wrong decision? Well, I think it's the idea to not make a decision is probably the worst. (laughs) It's probably the worst thing you can do. And I just have to caveat that. Not making a decision does not mean doing nothing. Sometimes the decision is to do nothing, right? So it's really about making the decision to either 
move or do something, or sometimes it's do nothing. And so the, one of the examples I use in the book is this tactic, military tactic that they used to talk about in Vietnam called recon by fire, where a U.S. patrol would be patrolling and the enemy somewhere would start firing. And they'd basically just be firing their guns wherever just to see if they could elicit a response. And if they respond, say the patrol fired back, suddenly the enemy knows exactly where the... Yeah, you're giving away your position. Yeah, you're giving away your position, right? So, well, in special operations, you read about the guys there in Vietnam who understood, and we learned this in training, was that, hey, you're a small unit. You don't necessarily need to, nor do you want to, nor can you get into a protracted big gunfight with the enemy. So just because you heard gunfire from the enemy didn't necessarily mean you had to shoot back, right? Sometimes it was like, hey, don't do anything. Stop and just assess. It didn't mean you were doing nothing. It meant you decided to stop and wait. So I think it's this trust and knowledge that making a decision, doing something, as long as it's a decision, you know, I say doing something, making a decision to do something or nothing, but it's a decision, is encouraged. But also an understanding that the decisions, a decision, while it's definitely final, is not permanent, okay? I'm going to make a decision It's going to be final, which means we're going to move out on that decision, okay? It doesn't mean it's permanent. There's an element of adaptability that we all need to have and that team members need to have so that after you start moving out on that decision, if you find that, oh, wait, that was the wrong decision, <laughs> you're willing to then adapt and change, okay? So making decisions that are final but not permanent and then owning it. You have to own it. Accountability comes in again because if you don't own it, then you're not looking at it in an honest, effective transparent way such that you can assess it as immediately as you can because you need to assess, okay, was that good? Are we moving forward? Are we moving back? Do we need to change? And things like that. So I think it's a combination of all that stuff that you have to imbue in all of your team members. If I make a bad decision, is it punitive? Like, are you counting up all the bad decisions I make? Or is it more of, okay, you made this decision, let's all learn from it kind of environment, like the Blue Angels. Right, do. yeah. So how do you approach it? Because I think what happens in business is managers don't want to make a decision because they think if I make the wrong decision, I'm going to get yelled at or hammered yeah, in, yeah. in trouble. Yeah. Well, first of all, I definitely have to create an environment where that doesn't happen. And I think the punitive aspect comes only after you've examined the decision-making process, right? If I had someone on my team who was in a position, collected and assessed all the information that they had at the moment and then made a decision and moved out, um, and it happened to be the wrong decision, it's not likely there'd be any punitive action because it's really the process that we're looking at, not necessarily the decision Great. itself. Great. There's no way to predict whether or not I or anybody else would have made a different decision. You say, hey, in that environment, I probably would have made the same decision. The fact is that person made a decision. If, on the other hand, you see someone make a very hasty, not well thought out decision based on emotion or based on, you name the intent, but that wasn't in the intent of the best... Ego, arrogance. Yeah, right. ego, but yeah, the best mm -hmm. outcome of the team, that's when you become punitive. But I would say the punitive aspect comes with how the decision was made, not necessarily the decision. And that's how you then create a culture of people who understand that it's about the decision-making process, not necessarily about whether or not you're right or wrong. So Rich, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition we call the Heartbeat Round to give us a little more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life. I'm going to ask you a few more personal questions, but these ones require a quick and instinctive and brief answer. So in other words, your goal is to answer each of these in a heartbeat. Are you willing to give it a go? Absolutely. I'm ready to go. Okay, cool. One attribute you consider essential to your own success? Yes, I would say humility. This desire to surround myself consistently and constantly with people who are way better than me is something I've leaned on for a long time. 
military leader of any country or era you look up to? Yes, a tough question. I don't have one. I would say the one who deeply understands the consequences of war, because war is not to be trifled with. And those leaders who can understand both the pros and cons are the ones I look up to. Cultural value every organization should have. Uh, The idea that knowledge is not power. Applied knowledge is power. We can know exactly how to do something, but if we don't do anything, it's stagnant and stale. It's not going anywhere. So you have to apply your knowledge to actually do something. One thing you'd like to see changed in the world? i definitely like to see more curiosity and open-mindedness. I think our ability to step outside our own perspectives is something that would empower and help all of us. Skill improvement you're working on right now. I'm working on my self-discipline. <laughs> it's a skill <laughs> that I'm trying to work on. Yeah, can, I, can I do better self-discipline-wise? Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. I think everybody should at least once in their life deliberately do something that scares them and feel what it feels like to move through that fear. Greatest coaching advice you've ever personally received? I was told as a young officer to beware the fearless leader because he'll likely get you killed. Fear is a natural and required element of our ability to be cautious and assess risk. So run away from the fearless leader. A trait you greatly admire in other people? Those people who don't care what other people think. They do their own thing and they're iconoclastic in their behavior and their, and their pursuits. Your synonym for the word heart? I think it would be effort. One person alive or dead you'd most like to have dinner with? Uh, Probably Carl Sagan. I love that guy. I watch him on YouTube all the time. I remember I was a kid when he was still alive, and I always loved the Cosmos show. Lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life, much earlier. Um, That you're only the victim if you choose to be. Now, that's the caveat is certainly people have situations where they are, in fact, the victim, right? But a lot of our experience, we victimize ourselves, and I think that's a choice. Something big that's still left for you to do on your bucket list. I would love to dive with great white sharks. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Arrogance and insecurity. But we have to understand that arrogance always comes from insecurity. You know, insecurity is malicious. But the difference between arrogance and confidence is that confidence is I know I can do this. And arrogance is I am better than others. You know, the leaders that can't see that typically will be derailed, I think. Arrogance is the number one answer, and I appreciate your insight that it's tied to insecurity because I think that's absolutely right. Great answers. Thank you very much. Let's get back to our conversation. Great. I want to get into, I actually want to get into three of five attributes that you say are specifically linked to leadership success. So I'll name them for the audience. It's empathy, Mm -hmm. selflessness, authenticity, decisiveness, and accountability. We've kind of just already talked about decisiveness. So I want to talk about empathy, selflessness, and authenticity. So if you can just take them one at a time and tell me why do you believe these have emerged as being so essential, not just to SEAL team leadership, but really to all leadership where human beings are involved. Yeah, absolutely. And the first point that I want to reemphasize is this idea that leadership is a behavior. It's not a position. And so these attributes are behaviors that allow someone to then say, this person is a leader. If we think about the people in our lives who we consider leaders, it may not have anything to do with what they are in charge of at the time, right? My dad, he's been a lawyer for 50 years. It didn't stop me from calling him when I had my first house and I had trouble with my plumbing. He doesn't know much about plumbing. I just know he's someone who will listen, he'll mentor, he'll guide, and he's always been a leader in my life. So it's a behavior. All five of these attributes are behaviors. So these three, these first three, I think are so important because they show people that you care. So let's just start with empathy. Empathy is not, I know how you feel, it's I feel how you feel. It's different than sympathy. And it's this ability to 
actively and proactively step into the shoes of another. Really quite difficult when you're talking about someone who is quite diverse and different backgrounds than you do. And I would encourage an effort that someone would make. Look at someone who, say, has the polar opposite political view as you do and see if you can step into their shoes for enough moments and enough time to empathize with how and why they feel that way and see if they can feel that. But as people, if we're in leadership positions, it's not as much of a leap. We've all, if we are in positions where we are in charge and we've come to come up the chain, we've probably been in the very positions of those people we're in charge of, which means empathizing with their positions may not be as hard as we think. But once you do, you begin to show them that you actually care. You show them that you care about them as a human being. You show them that you care about them as a person. You show all this stuff, right? So, so I think that's why empathy is important. If you show someone you care about them as a human being, they will immediately be bonded, you know? And that's, I think it's one of the first steps to leadership. So that's one. Selflessness is also a behavior that's different, though, than just pure generosity or altruism, okay? Selflessness is a behavior that involves a risk or cost to the person who is being selfless, right? So it's more than just, I'm going to give a couple bucks to the bum on the side of the street, right? Because that's not, I mean, that's just, it's, it's nothing, right? But it's, what am I doing that is actually at cost to me and at risk to me, okay? The quick example that I give in the book, and it's an easy one, is that the well-fed businessman buys a sandwich for lunch and is walking down the street and sees the homeless person on the street who hasn't eaten in three days, right? And the businessman decides, you know what? I don't need a sandwich. I'm going to give this to this homeless person, okay? What that businessman just did is not necessarily selfless, certainly generous, and altruistic, right? But it wasn't at much cost other than a price of a sandwich to that businessman. However, if that homeless person takes that sandwich and walks down to the next block and gives it to the other homeless person who he knows hasn't eaten in four days, that now is selfless because that person is giving a sandwich and putting at risk his own hunger you know, to give this to this other person, right? So selflessness involves risk and cost. In the business world, as leaders, this could be as simple as just taking time. You know, a good friend of mine likes to say time is the currency of leadership because we all have the same amount. None of us have more than anybody else. None of us have less than anybody else, right? Um, When we take time with another human being, especially someone who is in our span of care, it shows them that we care. You know, it shows them that we're putting aside a lot of probably other stuff we have to do or need to be doing and focusing on them as a human being. So just giving time to someone can be a selfless act because it costs you to some extent, right? But I would say, especially in these in these times of COVID and virtual employment, you know, we don't have this ability to be face-to-face right now. It's important because it can be detrimental. And so, so taking time with some of your human beings that are on the other side of that computer screen, individual time and showing them that you care is a great way to, to kind of practice selflessness, I think. And then authenticity. I think authenticity, if I were to I hesitate to rank these, but if I were to pick one that was probably the most important in leadership in terms of people kind of making that decision fast, it's authenticity. And the reason is because authenticity builds trust. Authenticity is this idea that you are who you are, no matter where you are, no matter who you're with, no matter what position you're in, whether you're at work, you're at home, you're the same person. You can be counted on. And so, and this doesn't necessarily mean you have to be nice. I had a CEO that um, was taking over the command I was at. So we were at the change of command ceremony where he was taking over. This was years ago and I was a young lieutenant. And I remember going up and introducing myself to the new CEO and immediately, like it was a cold handshake and he immediately kind of went in on me on these tough questions. He was grumpy. He was asking me really hard questions about some gear that I didn't know a lot about. And I was giving him some kind of answers that had been given to me and they weren't obviously the right answers. 
And after that two or three minute conversation, I walked away going, man, this is going to be a tough <laughs> two years with this guy. But what I realized over the next few weeks was that this guy was like that with everybody, whether it was junior officers, enlisted, senior officers, whether it was out on the PT field, whether it was at Chow, whether it was in his office, he was always authentically grumpy. He was always authentically <laughs> asking the tough questions. He was always that way, which meant I could always count on him. Yep. And in fact, he was a phenomenal leader. To this day, I consider him one of my best leaders because I could adjust. I could always count on him to be who he was. He wasn't anybody else. And you're prepared. So you know what to give him, right? Yeah, Ultimately, yeah. you grew into understanding, okay, I know what I'm going to get from him. I know what he's looking for. So I'm going to give it to him. You probably built a better relationship that way. Totally. totally. And I, I remember, and I tell this story, but it was years later, probably a good five, six years later that I ended up overseas and I ended up working on a task force and he was who I was working for. I didn't know that until I showed up and there he was. And he greeted me with a cold handshake and said, hey, good to see you. I have work that you needed to get done yesterday <laughs> in a nice yeah. grumpy way. And strangely, I felt great. I was really comfortable. I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to enjoy this, right? Because he was authentic. So I think that's the importance of authenticity. If we're a different person at work than we are at home, in one of those two places, we're lying to some extent, you know? So we have to really examine ourselves and our behavior and think about our authenticity. So inauthenticity is actually very easy to spot by those outside our circle, which we have to be cognizant of. We sometimes think it's invisible, but it's not. People can see it pretty easily. So we have to be careful. Rich, we're going to end it here. But I will say, though, that it is interesting to me. Obviously, the decisiveness and the accountability, those are classic traditional leadership essentials, right? Mm -hmm. But this idea that in SEAL management, management of SEALs, and, and really you're applying this to all of leadership, that empathy, selflessness, and authenticity have emerged to the top. I think that's rather remarkable and really you know, deserves being called out. So on behalf of my entire audience, I want to say thank you so very much. Best of success with the book. This has been really enlightening, very informative, and thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate being here, and I'm honored to be here. So thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Take care, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Before we go, I want to thank all of you who have taken time to write a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Many of you left initials and placeholders instead of your name. So while I can't call everyone out personally, please know how very grateful I am to each of you for helping me out. And as always, I want to thank my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz, for all of his wonderful work. And of course, I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now.